Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we often hear in references to New Orleans, Louisiana, a uh, a hat tip to uh, the uh, phrase, a tale of two cities. Certainly Thursday night for some people in New Orleans, few folks, was the best of times and the worst of times. There was a, a book reading at a um, an uptown bookstore, Octavia Books, I was invited to. I didn't even remember that uh, something I'd written in haste for the Huffington Post had been included. It was a book of uh, blog posts for the first two years after the flood of New Orleans. And I'll explain the use of that word in a moment. For those of you who still use the word storm uh, and so a few of the people who contributed to the book read their pieces. I was amazed. I had to check to see that the uh, the date attributed to my post, which was December of 2006, was correct, because having read it, it looked like it must have been from December of 2005. But no, it wasn't. The doubt, the existential doubt, the contingent nature of the recovery was still plainly evident a year and a half after the water left the city. I was reminded of that. It, it's one of the things you forget as the recovery continues apace. Of course, this is the week of the... Oh, so continue the story. Uh, sort of independently, a few of us decided to uh, make our way over to a local restaurant after the book reading. And I was one of them. And I left about 10.30... And half an hour later, a few of the folks that I knew were still in the restaurant when three armed robbers entered and did an armed robbery. Nobody was hurt physically. But, you know, when you're lying on the floor with a gun pointed at your head, it's not the best way to end a meal. Anyway, that so, and, and so far, police have not uh, called me to investigate the very convenient, na- the very convenient timing of my uh, departure, but... Who knows? Anyway, yes, this is the week of the 10th anniversary of the flooding of New Orleans. And um, I have earned the sobriquet from uh, one of my friends here, very talented, brilliant urban geographer, Richard Campanella, uh, classes me in the category of a Katrina scold, because every time I hear somebody say, as the Washington Post did this morning, that Katrina slashed and snarled its way into New Orleans on August 29th, 2005. I raise my hand and say, excuse me, you can't say that. Um, 2006, about the time that I had written that blog post, as you may, if you've been a regular listener to this broadcast, know, two independent engineering forensic investigation reports had been issued. Both of them pointing the finger of culpability for the flood, not at Katrina, but at the United States Army Corps of Engineers, which had been building the so-called hurricane protection system, not yet complete at the time of August 29, 2005, for the preceding four decades plus. Uh, in fact, the authors of one of those reports, the one out of Berkeley, have recently uh, written a new follow-up report saying, 
the Army Corps of Engineers during their investigation dissembled, don't you know, in uh, trying to deflect some of the blame to local levy boards, but they have concluded, these engineers and scientists, that that is in fact what that was, dissembling, and that uh, they erred in uh, believing it. So they have corrected the record. But still, you know, Katrina slashed and snarled its way into New Orleans, according to the Washington Post. Sue me when people when I read that, even if I don't email them and say, excuse me, you can't say that. I do stop reading at that point. I I recommend you do the same. Um, I I will say that in the welter of 10th anniversary stuff that is coming our way, um, it's quite possible that there is only one done by a New Orleans resident. And I humbly, uh, no, not so humbly, uh, tug your coat about it. I made a radio documentary for the BBC. And if you're at all interested in finding out how the city has done over the last 10 years and what happened, and there's a breaking news story at the very end, which uh, may or may not appear elsewhere in the American media, but is the essential answer to the question, have lessons been learned? Guess what the answer is. Anyway, that you can hear it uh, next Saturday, August 29th, 3 p.m. New York time, noon L.A. time, 2 p.m. New Orleans time. Uh, you can go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. That's the network it's on, Radio 4. Or you can uh, hear it on uh, the TuneIn app or on the Wonder Radio app, Wonder with a U. Uh, and it's, it'll be at the BBC for at least the next seven days. And it's an hour long, 10 years in an hour. Not really, not quite. Um, but there, there are some facts in that piece. I will suggest you may not hear in uh, any of the others, including this one. And I've mentioned this on the broadcast before, but it bears repeating. 100,000 people were evacuated from the city, were given one-way tickets to they, uh, put on a bus or a helicopter, We and they were taken, transported to they knew not where. They weren't allowed to leave, even if the bus passed by an area where they had relatives. No, they were going to where somebody decided they were going to go. We know nothing about them. No government agency, no non-governmental agency has kept track of them in the intervening 10 years. We know more. We're better able to trace luggage on the worst airline in the United States than we are to know what happened to to the 100,000 people who were evacuated from New Orleans. Hello. Welcome to the show.
what's more, I'm wasted and I can't find my way home. Come down on your own, home. leave your money at home. Somebody's got to change. You are the reason I have been waiting all these years. Somebody holds the From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. We've got the ultra-modern knack of getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a bit of slack and say a hearty, what the frack? What the frack? Top shale oil producer Pioneer Natural Resources has found an unusual way to both save water and cut costs for its wells, tapping the treated runoff from toilets, sinks, and showers in West Texas. Pioneer has signed an 11-year, $117 million deal with Odessa. Don't be no fancy dresser in Odessa that will guarantee it access to millions of gallons of treated, treated municipal wastewater each day for use in nearby oil fields. Deliveries of the so-called effluent, that's right, they will be the effluent society, are expected to start at the end of the year. Oil and gas companies doing shale fracking are trying to cut every unnecessary penny from their operations as the price of oil keeps going down. 
And they're also trying to mitigate long-term risks of water scarcity in the arid Permian Basin of West Texas. What a nice idea to finally figure out that it's arid in Texas. According to uh, Reuters, oil and gas companies operating in areas like that have long sought cheaper, more environmentally sound sources of water to use for fracking. How about tears? And uh, Dateline Sacramento, a California lawmaker, has proposed a new label for food irrigated with what he calls fracking water. Excuse me? Excuse the frack out of me? Assemblyman Mike Gatto of Glendale, Glendale, said such water might include, might include harmful contaminants, including carcinogens. It now turns out, we learn, oil companies sell farms in the Central Valley of California, the arid Central Valley, millions of gallons of treated wastewater every day for irrigation. Here's the other end of the treated wastewater, after it's been used by the oil companies, not before. Some water extracted from the ground during hydraulic fracking is also used for irrigation. Mm-mm. Maybe don't just wash your vegetables. Leave them in the bathtub overnight. What do you think? That's a Trumpian. What do you think? Sounds like an immigrant. What do you think? Gatto says customers have right, the right to know what kind of water is being used on their food. Now you tell me. This is not water you would want to drink, he says. I think a lot of the people doing this have the attitude that the soil should just be the filter. Hmm? Representatives for two farm industry groups have declined to comment on his proposal. Some ag experts, ag experts down in the Midwest, no, ag experts say not enough is known about the topic to say that a label is necessary. <laughs> yeah, as long as we're ignorant about something, don't, put a, don't slap a label on it. Good thinking. Others say it's misleading to declare that fracking water is being used on crops. An irrigation and soils farm advisor with the University of California Farm Extension says water pumped out of the ground during hydraulic fracking is separated from oil, treated, and then used for irrigation in rare cases. It's not sick. Why is it treated? The high-pressure mix of water and chemicals used to break up and fracture rocks is not used to water crops, he explained. He said there hasn't been much research on the effects of oil field produced water, that is water that comes out at the same time as the oil, on crops. Given the role that soil plays in filtering contaminants, I believe soil evolved to filter out contaminants that have existed for a while, not new ones that we just invented, sir. Just a thought. He says, and the microorganisms, microorganisms that consume impurities, same point, sir. He said it's much too early to stick labels on food. Asked whether crops grown with the water present a food safety risk, he added, at this point in the game, there's not a shred of evidence. So I'm going to put words in his mouth at this point. What the frack? But, you know, of all the things one could put in one's mouth, words are probably the least toxic. What the frack, ladies and gentlemen. Now, who's who's the... And this is this is really almost teeing it up for Donald Trump. God, I had to say that word, didn't I? Say, say that name. Oh, well, forgive me. But uh, this really is almost too much of a setup for him. Um, who's the super predator on the planet? Who's, who's the real big-butted uh, predator of our uh, esteemed planet? Well, yeah, two, two guesses. It's you and me, babe. 
Human status as a unique super predator is laid bare in a new study in Science magazine. What do they know? The analysis of global data details the ruthlessness of our hunting practices and the impacts that that has on prey. Humans typically take out adult fish populations at 14 times the rate that marine animals do. Those dumb whales. (laughs) And on land, we kill top carnivores such as bears, wolves, and lions at nine times their own self-predation rate. Self-predation. Wasn't that what Mitt Romney proposed for uh, immigrants in 2012? Perhaps the most striking observation, say authors Chris Daramont and colleagues, is the fact that human beings focus so heavily on taking down adult prey. That's the opposite of the rest of the animal kingdom who exploit the vulnerability of juveniles. Part of this is explained by the tools that human hunters can deploy. We can tackle adult prey at minimum cost and so gain maximum short-term reward, explained Professor Darman. Advanced killing technology mostly excuses humans from the formerly dangerous act of predation. Humans capture mammals with bullets and fish with hooks and nets. They assume minimal risk compared with non-human predators, which are often injured while living what amounts to a dangerous lifestyle. Hey, babe, I live in New Orleans. Tell me about that. The concentration on large adult prey is triggering extinctions as well as driving an evolutionary shift towards smaller fish sizes and disrupting global food chains, say the authors. Well, that's how they know we've been here. If, if we didn't, who would have known that we were here if we didn't do that? A co-author of the study calls the adults the, uh, the system's reproductive capital the equivalent of capital held in a bank account or a pension fund. He says, we're eating into the capital when we really should be living off the interest. The juveniles, which many species produce in colossal numbers, expecting a good fraction to be doomed from the moment they're born, either through predation, starvation, or some other vation. Maybe motivate, lack of motivation. The heavily biased preference for adults was not a sustainable strategy long-term, which ought to be clear from fundamental biology, biology says Professor Darmont. In the overwhelming number of cases as fishes age, they become more fecund, that is to say, they produce more eggs, have more babies, and in fact, many more of those babies are more likely to survive and reproduce themselves. So when a predator targets that reproductive age class and especially the larger, more fecund animals in those populations, we are dialing back the reproductive capacity of populations. Because we're number one. Don't you get it? Much of the standard conservation management today is based on the notion that it is the toddlers that should be let go to ensure robust numbers for the next generation. Trawl nets are specifically designed to support this approach. Doing it the other way would be challenging, but technical solutions are available, says one of the authors. There are traps that can define the entrance to a net, which then very easily allows you to exclude fish above a certain size. As for quotas, they should more closely align with the numbers taken out by natural predators, the team suggests. Hey, if we wanted to be a natural predator, we wouldn't have grown thumbs. We are the super predators. Get over it. And uh, speaking of things we should get over, news of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. I think this even made the news. The world broke new heat records last month, marking the hottest month in history and the warmest first seven months of the year since modern record-keeping began in 1880. 
The findings by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the United States, show a troubling trend. The planet continues to warm due to the burning of fossil fuels. Scientists expect these scorching temperatures to get worse. I think it was 90 degrees in London over the weekend, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, not a, not a predominantly air-conditioned city, except for the clothing stores and Starbucks. Quote, the world is warming. It is continuing to warm. That is being shown time and time again in our data, said the, a physical scientist at NOAA's Centers for Environmental Information. What does he know? Now that we're fairly certain that 2015 will be the warmest year on record, it's time to start looking at what are the impacts of that. What does that mean for people on the ground, he asked. I think it means get off the ground. Get somewhere comfortable. The month's average temperatures across land and, and sea surfaces worldwide was 61.86 degrees Fahrenheit, 16.61 Celsius, the hottest July ever. Hotter than July. This was also the all-time highest monthly temperature in the record's spanning the period between 1880 and 2015. The first seven months of the year were also all-time record warm for the globe. Temperatures for the year to date were uh, one and a half degrees above the 20th century average. Large parts of the earth were much warmer than average, including Africa, which had its second hottest July on record. Record warmth also observed across much of northern South America. That sounds like an oxymoron. Parts of southern Europe and Central Asia and the far western United States, as we all know. Parts of eastern Scandinavia and western Russia, eastern and southern Asia, and scattered areas in central and northern North America were cooler than average. So let's move there. And management of boreal forests, those are forests where the conifers grow. You remember the conifers? They used to live right next door. They are pines, spruces, and larches. Mmm, larches. Anyway, management of those forests needs greater attention from international policy. Uh, policy. That's uh, what forestry experts from the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis say, along with folks from folks. People, scientists from Natural Resources Canada and the University of Helsinki in a new article published in Science. Science, what do they know? I ask, I ask you, they look like Mexicans to me. The article, which reviews recent research in the field, is part of a special issue on forests released in advance of next month's World Forestry Congress. Get your tickets now. Boreal forests have the potential to hit a tipping point this century, says one of the researchers, Anthony Shvidenko. It's urgent we place more focus on climate mitigation, good luck with that, sir, and adaptation with respect to these forests and also take a more integrated and balanced view of forests around the world. I'll be doing that in the morning. Boreal forests, which sprawl across the northernmost regions of Canada, Russia, Alaska, and Scandinavia, they make up 30% of total forest area on the planet. Maybe too much, you think. Maybe it's, maybe it's time to, you know, push them back. They play a vital role in the Earth's climate system by sequestering carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They're home to a plethora of plants and animals. Must be crowded in that plethora. And they provide resources, including substantial amounts of wood, for lumber and biofuel production, as well as jobs for local indigenous people. At the same time, boreal forests are one of the ecosystems most affected by climate change. Temperatures in the Arctic and boreal domains recently have been warming at rates as high as half a degree centigrade per decade, and potential future warmings of 6 to 11 degrees centigrade over vast northern regions by, by 2100, according to the most pessimistic scenario. 
Studies have shown that climate zones in boreal forests are moving northwards ten times faster than the trees' ability to migrate. <laughs> They're slow moving, those trees. They got to pull up stakes, literally. Warmer and drier conditions and enhanced variability of climate may have already contributed to increased extent of wildfires and the spread of outbreaks of dangerous insects. <laughs> Thawing permafrost poses threats to the hydrological system at the continental scale. And you know it's hard to weigh a continent, so pay attention, as well as the potential of releasing huge amounts of CO2 and methane. These forests evolved under cold conditions. We do not know enough about the impacts of warning on their, warming on their resilience and buffering capacity. Huge areas of boreal forests may be at high risk of impoverishment or change to grassland or shrubland. Shrubland. Who wants that? You can get that in Texas. You don't have to go north for that. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, um, back to the subject uh, uh, mentioned at the top of this program. The subject of the city of New Orleans. The subject of 10 years since. Katrina snarled. What did it do? It uh, slashed and snarled its way into New Orleans, according to the Washington Post. Uh, the Washington Post also, they got the guy Miguel Francia, sounds like an immigrant, uh, wrote the story. Uh, also, he, he was uh, heavy on the S-verbs because he says New Orleans is now swaddled in new levee protection. We, uh, we examined that in some detail in the BBC broadcast, but um, the local nonprofit news organization in New Orleans, The Lens, did a uh, report card on President Obama's pledges um, regarding New Orleans. But of course, before President Obama came President Bush, and um, he was most notorious in, uh, in this context for the lack of alacrity in the um, relief efforts as people, both on television and off, the African-Americans who were clustered in uh, hellish conditions in the convention center and the Superdome and on the uh, elevated expressway or freeway, the, those were the ones you saw on television. There were, and, and I dare say most of the... Katrina Look Back shows won't mention this. There were thousands and thousands of people gathered on their roofs in 100-plus degree heat for four or five days with no food and water, about 10 miles east of what you saw. They weren't on television. They weren't near a freeway or a freeway off-ramp where TV trucks could easily arrive. Uh, most of the people who covered the story probably didn't even know that this area existed. It was called, it is called, St. Bernard Parish, and those people were working-class white people. Anyway, the, um, the notoriety of President Bush basically extended to the relief effort and to his uh, FEMA director, Mike Brown. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. What most people didn't know, and I think still don't know, unless you read a nonfiction book by the author Dave Eggers called Zaytun. Um, much like the 
the reports from the two investigations into the cause of the flooding, which were documented and, and um, which were shared on this broadcast and also in my documentary film, The Big Uneasy, uh, the reporting in Dave Egger's book has never been publicly rebutted, refuted, or even challenged. And his reporting is that while there was no food or water arriving, no relief, the federal government did do something really quickly. It built a detention center, a temporary detention center in the parking lot of the Greyhound bus station in downtown New Orleans because the hero of his book, a man who's had a tragic uh, life during and since the flooding, named Zaytun, um, that's where he was detained incommunicado for 30 days during the flood. Um, so it's worth worth remembering that uh, the first person to make pledges about uh, what would happen here was standing in a Klieglit Jackson Square. There was no electricity in New Orleans. The feds brought in generators so they could light up Jackson Square so President Bush could come in and say, we're going to make New Orleans whole. Gonna play their role And 
locals have bit parts in the production. We're gonna make New Orleans whole. We're gonna make New Orleans whole. New Orleans whole. New Orleans whole. New Orleans whole. Dig a hole for me, boys. So with all that in the background, a new president came into office. And as I mentioned before, the Lens, a nonprofit news organization, has done a report card on some of the things he pledged. President Obama pledged that he would work with the state of Louisiana to establish a goal. Now, the federal government had set up a program to reimburse homeowners for their damages caused by the flood, caused by the federal Army Corps of Engineers, uh, it was called the Road Home, and it was uh, kind of delayed, delay-prone. So the president, the new president, Obama, said he would work with the state to establish a goal for approving all road home applications within two months. We'll also work to increase the supply of rental property, which is particularly important in New Orleans, where 57% of pre-Katrina residents were renters. The uh, lens says... Despite President Obama's promise, the backlog was not eliminated in two months. And uh, rental housing was not increased. Rents have skyrocketed. It's now much like London or New York. Uh, People who work in New Orleans are having to move out of the city because they can't afford to live here. That's success. The president said he would ensure that New Orleans has a levee and pumping system to protect the city against a 100-year storm by 2011 with the ultimate goal of protecting this, the, uh, the entire city from a Category 5 storm. New Orleans is now, according to the lens, protected against a 100-year storm. That $14.5 billion system was mostly in place by 2011, although it wasn't quite finished. The pumping stations, the temporary ones Maria Garzina has told you about on this program and in The Big Uneasy, the ones that have design defects are still in place. The new ones are not expected to be finished at least until 2017. The city's 100-year protection isn't as impressive once you know that Congress originally called for a system that would guard the city against a much stronger storm. The system that failed in 2005 was supposed to have been built to protect the city against the maximum probable hurricane, a system, a, a system that could withstand a 200 to 300-year storm, according to the congressional mandate. After Katrina, the lens reports, New Orleans and Louisiana politicians wanted the Category 5 system. The Bush administration didn't want to pay for it, and it was important to build something quickly because city and state leaders worried no one would reinvest in the city until it qualified for federal flood insurance, which requires 100-year protection. Anxious it could take years to get something stronger, the city and state accepted what they could get from Washington. In the immediate aftermath of Katrina, the Bush administration said it would look at Category 5 protection in the future. Future, 
Obama elevated that to a, quote, ultimate goal. Nothing has been heard on that subject since. But look on the bright side. You know, promises don't spoil as quickly as tuna. But they don't keep as well as goldfish. So, sooner or later, you gotta get rid of them all. Hi, I'm B-Rock. Ever heard this before? We're here till it's done. How about this? Category 5 protection. If you're like me, you've heard them a hundred times. Heck, if you're like me, you've said them a hundred times or more. But after 10 years, it's time to close the books and clear them all out. That's right. For one week only, it's B-Rock's Katrina Pledge Closeout. Your last chance to get hold of your favorite from my catalog of Hurricane Katrina-related pledges. Each one absolutely heartfelt, and most of them still in mint condition. That's right. They were never used. How about this one? We'll use offshore oil revenues for coastal protection. Back in the day, it was sweet music. But now it's sitting unremembered in the oldies bin. During the Katrina Pledge closeout, it can be yours for just pennies a day. For much less than a day. How about this one? We'll get all road home assistance applications approved within two months. It was a big favorite around the White House. What we actually pledged was to work to establish that as a goal. And the pledge counted as work. Now it can be yours for the cost of the paper it's printed on. Sound like a deal? You bet. Because that's just what it was worth. During B-Rock's Katrina Pledge Closeout, there are pledges and promises galore from me and my predecessor. All at prices so low, they're a natural disaster. But hurry, this event can't last, and it won't be repeated. Once all the Katrina pledges are gone, so are we. So come on down this week to the partially staged appearance near you. Bring cash or your good credit or your bad credit. Maybe we'll flag you. Maybe we won't. B-Rock's Katrina Pledge Closeout. These deals are a federal flood of values. Juice. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. More, more about the water in Guanabara Bay, where. A lot of Olympic water-based events were going to be held, except for synchronized swimming. That's got to be in a pool. Believe me. A South Korean coach has blamed the waters used during a sailing test event in Rio for making his athlete ill. Windsurfer Won Woo Cho was taken to hospital during the event with the coach, Danny Ock, claiming the cause was probably from the water at Guanabara Bay. Rio organizers said there's no direct evidence to say the illness was caused by contact with water. But the head of Rio de Janeiro's water utility has acknowledged problems with the city's sewage-filled Guanabara Bay. He insisted the Olympic City will eventually reach its goal of collecting and treating all the waste currently dumped into the water body. Eventually. That's a long time. Speaking in an interview with the Associated Press, Georges Briard, president of the water utility, added his voice to the chorus of officials saying it will be impossible to make good on the Olympic pledge of collecting 80% of sewage in communities that ring the bay before sailing events are held there next year. So give up. Briard has acknowledged problems with the city's sewage-filled bay, but insisted the city will eventually reach its goal. He insisted Rio has been making progress in solving its sewage woes, pledged that sewage collection and treatment around the bay would be much better by the games less than a year away. Obviously, I'm not crazy enough to say there aren't problems, he said. There are many problems. 
That crazy he's not. He added the initiatives aimed at meeting Rio's targets had not taken place, quote, with the speed we imagined six years ago when Rio won its bid. A major cleanup of the city's blighted waterways was meant to be one of the game's most enduring legacies and was a key selling point for the city's winning bid. The failure to come anywhere near those promises has become a major headache for authorities in Rio. Briar downplayed a report by AP late last month showing alarmingly high levels of viruses and bacteria from human sewage in all of Rio's Olympic and Paralympic water venues. He insisted the waterways were safe for athletes. The AP investigation found uh, the Rodrigo de Freitas Lake to be among the most polluted for Olympic sites. Briar said he was surprised to hear of high levels of pollutants there. The head of an association representing Rio's gastroenterologists told the AP the city experienced recently several spikes in cases of severe diarrhea, particularly of viral origin. He added the such cases are vastly underreported. And planned closure of airspace over Rio's Guanabara Bay during sailing competitions would paralyze air travel and affect more than 150 passenger 150,000 passengers, airlines said Friday. Airspace could be cleared for news helicopters for four and a half hours a day during the Olympics. The airport could have its operations paralyzed. A meeting has been discussed to propose industrial action during the Games if the airport closure goes ahead. In addition to direct flights, there are connections with cities around Brazil. The airline said they had called on Olympic organizers to base filming of the sailing on Sugarloaf Mountain or to time helicopter flights in close coordination with scheduled airline flights. Because it's the Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. Speaking of Olympic pledges, it was just three years ago right now that uh, the Olympics, I think, were wrapping up in London. And one of the promises made to London was that it was going to be a big boon to uh, local merchants. Uh, and I was in London three years ago, right about now, uh, on the Tuesday of the first week of the Olympics, and uh, found that central London was basically deserted. Uh, what I learned from merchants and others was that normal tourist traffic had fallen off because people had you know, been warned to stay away. It's the Olympics! Don't go there unless you want to see the Olympics. Uh, one merchant told me his, his uh, summertime business was down 30% from a normal year. Uh, and you really could walk through streets in uh, the Covent Garden neighborhood and not see a car or a person. It was, it was pretty rem- – and that was the, that was the uh, bonanza that was promised to central London, which inspired this little ditty. for our premier broadcast on Soho Radio London. Covent Garden empty like a politician's words Avenues bereft except for buses, vans and birds Elbows barely needed when you walk through Leicester Square Central London's quiet cause there's no them there like the wintry silence when commuters stay away. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Chief executive of Spotify, Daniel Eck. Daniel Eck has apologized following anger over the music streaming service's new data privacy policy. Ugh. Yeah. Some users say they were leaving the music service over changes in its terms and conditions. They include access to pictures, contact phone numbers, and sensor data stored on the user's smartphone. Eck apologized in a blog post for the confusion the changes had created. He promised an update to the new policy in order to clarify it, but he didn't suggest the terms themselves would be changed. We should have done a better job in communicating what these policies mean and how any information you choose to share will and will not be used, he said. He said Spotify would not access or import people's phone, uh, people's photos, contacts, sensor, or GPS data without their permission. And your permission, of course, has been assumed by your using spot. No, I, maybe, maybe not. We'll have, I'm sure we'll hear more about that. Dateline. Somewhere. <laughs> Hammond. Oh, sorry. Dateline Hammond, Indiana. That's just me. Hammond, Indiana, home of Gene Shepard. St. Casimir Pastor William Bill O'Toole has stepped down from his position as pastor at St. Casimir and at All Saints Catholic Church after he was seen August 9th walking naked through St. Casimir Catholic School. Police Lieutenant Richard Hoida said detectives are investigating the incident. O'Toole has stepped down as pastor 
He'll be on a leave of absence. We'll be undergoing a psychological evaluation. Police indicated it's not a criminal offense. Private property. O'Toole apologized and said it's a regrettable lack of judgment on his part. I forgot my pants and they, they, they blamed me. Elton John has ended his long-running feud with fashion designers Dolce & Gabbana by accepting their apology over the IVF baby insult, which hit headlines earlier this year. First thing I've heard about it, but I don't read the headlines. Sue me. The Rocket Man star took umbrage with the Italian-style duo after they labeled children born using in vitro fertilization, quote, chemical offsprings from a rented uterus, unquote, in an interview. The style stars made amends for their comments in a new chat with Vogue magazine, Dolce addressing John as he declared, I am so sorry. It was not my intention to offend anyone. I've done some soul searching. I've talked to Stefano a lot about this. Stefano is Gabbana. 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 I've realized that my words were inappropriate and I apologize. They're just kids. You don't need labels, baby labels. Please buy our clothes. He didn't say that last part, but, you know. ESPN. The world leader in sports coverage has issued an apology to the NFL, the National Football League's New England Patriots franchise, for a mistake made while reporting on the team's scandals. The apology was for a mistake made while addressing the 2002 so-called Spygate scandal, not for a controversial report on underinflated footballs during New England's current so-called Deflategate firestorm. It's, it's, all Pat, it's all Patriot Gate to me. The apology was delivered by Sports Center anchor Steve Levy at about 12:20 a.m. Thursday during a late-night edition of the program. Never too late. Yeah, uh, too late in both senses, year-wise and clockwise. And McDonald's has apologized to freelance writer David Sikorsky and photographer Christina Bakrevsky. They sound like immigrants. Don, please. After they, I'm just flying over. After they accused the fast food chain of copying their cheeky engagement photos. Cheeky, according to Adweek magazine, in which the object of Sikorsky's affection is a burrito. Sikorsky's pictorial series went viral about a month ago. It shows him kicking back in the grass, seated on a park bench, casting longing and come hither looks at a burrito wrapped in silver foil. The McDonald's ads rolled out earlier this month, promoting the chain's double cheeseburger combo deal. In a series of tweets, various folks strike poses similar to those in some of Sikorsky's photos. I came up with the concept as a satirical take on the engagement photos that flood my everyday social media channels, Sikorsky told Adweek. The photos are in fact licensed. We gave permission to BuzzFeed for the first use of the photos. They quickly took off, showing up at People, Time, and the Huffington Post. The photos used by McDonald's are not a spinoff or take on it, but an exact duplicate from the wardrobe, the positions, and the concept. Neither myself, my photographer, nor the licensing company were approached. The pair began calling and tweeting at McDonald's. By the time Adweek contacted them, they had yet to receive a reply. But in response to questions from Adweek, a McDonald's representative said, this shouldn't have happened, and with our agency partner, we're working to find out how it did. We're reaching out to David and Christina. We apologize to them, their fans, and ours. Yeah, McDonald's has fans. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I'm going to be a pest for people who weren't listening at the beginning of the broadcast. My look at the past decade in New Orleans, produced for BBC Radio 4, called The Crescent in the Shadow, airs this coming Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central Time, noon 
Pacific Time at bbc.co.uk slash radio4 or via the TuneIn app. No uh, guaranteed, no hurricane slashing, snarling at New Orleans, and uh, the city won't be swaddled in levy protection on that broadcast. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the East Coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet. On the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and TuneIn. And it'd be just like being swaddled in levy protection. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and your your ability, your actual power to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshare.com. Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station. The Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.